Gracious Lord, when shall it be that earth will find her all in thee? The fullness of thy promise prove, seal me with thy eternal love. The only thee am fain to find. the world and sin behind oh my redeemer hear this plea and let me find my all in thee show me So strong and sure. 
Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly trust in Jesus' name. Sing that again. My hope. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly trust in Jesus' name.
strength and song highest praise to him belongs Christ the Lord our conquering king your name we raise your triumph sing praise the Good morning. Good morning. Welcome to the Parkway Church. My name is Jared Lawson. Go ahead and make your way in here. Have a seat. We're glad you're with us this morning. A couple announcements before we get started. Uh, if you are a member of this church, we'll be having a member meeting August 15th. That'll be Sunday night at 5 p.m. I want to encourage you, please come to that. Uh, this is a time where we can really uh, dive in and tell you about what's going on in the life of our church, what we want to do moving towards the future, things like that. Uh, so we have some pretty significant updates in this uh, coming member meeting about how we're going to revamp groups and things like that, discussions on uh, communion. So please, if you're a member, attend that. Please, I'm begging you on behalf of the elders of the Parkway Church. Uh, but that will be uh, August 15th at 5 p.m. We'll have cookies and coffee to wake you up. I know 5 p.m. on Sunday nights are real tough. Uh, so please show up to that, and if you're like, oh, that sounds so great, but I'm not a member of the church, I want to attend, I want to hear what's happening, we have found a way. There is a membership class 
uh, for you non-members on August 1st, immediately after service. If you're interested uh, in this church, you want to know a little bit more, you want to perhaps become a member, or you just want more information, uh, that's the class to go to. We walk through our statement of faith, walk through our philosophy of ministry, all things Parkway. We want to put all our cards out on the table so you know what you're getting into. Uh, so that will be August 1st, immediately after service. We'll uh, feed you all that fun stuff, uh, but you need to sign up so that we know that you're coming. So uh, let us know. Email us, either any of the uh, staff guys or at info at theparkwaychurch.com. We'll send you the sign-up link, and that'll be August 1st, immediately after service. Uh, we've been breaking uh, from our extracurricular activities, if you will, for the month of July. We rest from all extra things in July and in December, but all that will start up in August because, and this is important, August is when July ends and the next month begins. So we'll be starting everything up. We'll start back uh, theological equipping classes. We'll get into things like the first and second great awakening. We'll go through the Puritans. We're getting into closer to us history. We're walking through church history and you guys are like, boo, boring early church. Boo, boring middle ages. And then we're like, but Protestants. And you're like, yes, okay. So we'll be diving straight into Protestants and our evangelical family uh, in this coming semester. So that'd be uh, a lot of fun. We'll also start up our uh, elementary equipping classes, things like that. Groups will restart and so will youth uh, on Sunday night. So all of that starts again in August. Uh, you'll notice, I, I made this announcement last week, looking at you guys, but it really only affects the rights, the genes, and the reinas. Uh, we don't have speakers pointing at you guys yet, so it sounds really echoey. Not for these people who are mainly listening to me, but only for you nine. Uh, but on Monday, can you hear me? On Monday, we're getting speakers, so you'll be able to hear you know, me and the, the preacher just as gloriously as 99% of the rest of the people listening to me right now. So fear not, just one more week of weirdness and one more week of this announcement. Okay, so last announcement. If you're a visitor with us, there's a card in the seat in front of you. If you will take that and fill that out, either with your phone on this QR code, which is preferred because it is the 21st century, uh, and let us know, you know who you are. We'd love to answer any questions that you have about this church. We don't want you to be anonymous. Uh, if you don't have a phone with such high-tech capabilities, we've put a pin in the seat in front of you. You can fill that out and put it in the giving box in the back. That would be great. Okay. Go ahead and stand for me, and if you would, scoot in. That's really helpful for people coming in late. They don't have to crawl over you. It's much easier for them to find seats and things like that. I'll pray before Tim leads us in worship. Father, we love you. Uh, we confess that you are so much bigger than we naturally imagine you. Uh, we, we go about life. We uh, are busy. We're stressed. And so uh, little do we think about the fact that the king of the universe, the one who's giving us our next breath, our next heartbeat, uh, is our father. That you brought us into your family. You've adopted us as your sons and your daughters because you've sent your true son your eternal son, to take our place, uh, to take the punishment we deserve and therefore give us the blessing that we don't deserve. So we pray that that beautiful gospel is clearer in our minds as we worship you right now, as we hear from your word. I pray that your spirit would move in our hearts, that all the things that are, are pulling our attention away from you would be quieted, that we might uh, receive the peace and the joy that your gospel promises. We love you. We pray in your son's holy name. Amen. Mercy on me, O oh God. 
According to your unfailing love According to your great compassion Blot out my transgressions Have mercy on me, O oh God According to your unfailing love According to your great compassion
you that uh, we have been risen indeed from the grave, from our, our shackles of sin. We thank you for your grace. Pray that we would recognize wherever we are, however far we've progressed or how far we think we've sunk into this valley of despair, that we would recognize that you raise the dead to life, that you call uh, darkness and make it light. And so I pray, Lord, that you would, uh, you would help us to realize that, that you would change our hearts, that we would trust in you, not in ourselves. We confess we need you. It's in Christ's name that we sing and pray. Amen. Amen. Good morning to you. Today we're uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 7 through 13. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God, we're no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. You may be seated. Good morning, how's everybody? Good, good to see you. Welcome to the Parkway Church. My name is Zach, one of the pastors here. Hope that you are doing great. If you've got your Bible, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, starting in verse 7. While you're turning there, I want to tell you about a Twitter account that I think is hilarious because I'm a nerd. You probably won't think it's hilarious. One of the greatest works of Christian theology is a work called the Summa Theologia. It was written by Thomas Aquinas, and it combines Orthodox Christian theology with the philosophy of Aristotle. It's massive. It's five large volumes. It's thousands of questions. It's, a, it's an incredible work. And there's a guy online, and what he does is he just takes random sentences from the Summa Theologia, and he tweets them out without context, okay? It's called the Summa minus context. So here you have this brilliant work of Christian theology, but because this guy just takes little snippets, like half sentences, and tweets them out, you have no idea what's being said. Let me share a few of those with you, if I may. Drunkenness is the greatest. That's it. That's the whole tweet. We don't know if he's saying drunkenness is the greatest sin or anything else. It just says drunkenness is the greatest, and there's no context. It is apparently a sin to slay dumb animals and plants. Again, just a random tweet. That's not actually true biblically, and so what he's doing is he's taking these, these passages from Aquinas and he's pulling them out of context and tweeting them. 
No one finds fault with those who are ugly, right? I disagree with that, but that's just the text that he's just out there, just no context. Gluttony is a moderation in food, and man cannot avoid this, okay? One of my favorites, thou shall not murder, thou shall not steal, but. That's it. Just ends the sentence after the but. And then probably my favorite one, kisses, touches, and the like can be done sometimes. Well, that's encouraging. Sometimes kisses and touches and the like can be done. Now, the reason I think that's funny is because you have this profound theological insight that really you don't know what's being said because you're just getting these snippets. Now, the reason I tell you that is throughout the book of 1 Corinthians, and especially in 1 Corinthians 8, there are a lot of places where we don't know if what's being said are Paul's direct words or if he's quoting the Corinthians. Remember, Paul had already written another letter to the Corinthians that we don't have. The Corinthians have already written another letter to Paul. And so it's kind of like we're jumping in on an email thread right in the middle. And so there are several places throughout 1 Corinthians where Paul is actually quoting a Corinthian slogan or a Corinthian catchphrase, but we don't know exactly where they are. Your biblical editors have put quotation marks in certain places to try to help you out, but we don't know for sure. Why? Because as the New Testament was originally written in Koine Greek, it was written in all capital letters with no punctuation and no spacing. It's just like looking into the matrix, all right, with all these letters. And so sometimes it's hard to figure out, is this Paul's quote? Is it the Corinthians quote? And, and scholars debate each other over this all the time. Now, here's why that's not relevant for our passage today. There are several places in our passage today that might be a Corinthian slogan or might not be a Corinthian slogan, but it doesn't matter, and here's why. The Apostle Paul is actually going to agree with the Corinthians at several places here, but he's going to agree with them for a different reason. We've already seen him do this. The Corinthians would say, you should stay single because it's, like, because it's like you're already resurrected and you'll be like the angels and you should stay single. And Paul's like, well, I agree that there's goodness to singleness, but not because of your weird theology, but rather because you can devote more time to ministry. And so Paul will agree with them in certain places, but for a different reason. We'll see the, that as we move throughout our text. Let me pray and then we will get into a text that seems weird that will actually be very, very relevant for today. So let's pray. Father, we come to you through the Son and by the Spirit, and we confess that you are great and we are not, and we need your help. We thank you for your word, that you've given us uh, who you are and what, we, what you require of mankind, and more importantly, what you've done for mankind in black and white. We ask that you would open our eyes to see wonderful things in your word. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Let's look at verse 7. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. What is going on in verse 7? Let's look at the first part of it, and then I'll give you some context. However, not all possess this knowledge. What is he talking about? Okay, put yourself into the shoes, or the sandals rather, of someone in ancient Corinth. Here's what would happen. If you were to worship the gods, because this is a polytheistic system, if you grew up in a Greco-Roman culture, you would worship the gods, plural, and that's what you were used to. So what you would do to worship the gods is you would go to one of their temples, so, for example, let's say you're six years old and you live in Corinth and you're going to the temple of Asclepius, Asclepius, the god of healing. What you would do is you would go to the temple and you would do several things. You would pray to Asclepius, by the way. By the way, the god Asclepius, his symbol is a serpent because snakes shed their skin. It's kind of like new life. What is the symbol that you see today on like a paramedic symbol? A serpent. That is in honor of the god Asclepius, the god of healing. So you even see it today. So you go to Asclepius' temple, and you pray, you light some candles, 
And one of the things that you would do is you would look at and probably bow before an idol. Idols were very, very common in polytheistic systems of worship. They're still common today in many other cultures. Now, you weren't actually worshiping the idol. Okay? The Greeks would not have agreed with the Old Testament Jewish prophets who would have made fun of them for worshiping an idol uh, that they had made. They didn't think they actually worshipped the idol. What they did is they worshipped the God behind the idol. You see, the idol is like a portal. It's like a telescope that you can look through to focus on the gods you want to worship. If you've ever been praying before and your mind starts to wonder, what they had is something that you could look at to focus your mind so that you could worship that God. So you're used to worshiping idols, okay? Now, what Paul is going to say, and this is what Jeff taught on last week, he did an excellent job, is that when you worship an idol, you're not actually worshiping any other gods because there are no other gods. There's only one God. We are monotheist. One God who is triune, Father, Son, and Spirit, but only one God. But what Paul said, though, is when you're worshiping an idol, it's not that you're worshiping nothing just because there aren't other gods. You're actually doing something demonic. You're worshiping demons. False religions, according to Paul, are not just different paths to the same goal. They are demonic. Okay, so keep that in mind. So this knowledge that they have is that when they finally convert and they become Christians, they realize that an idol has no power. They realize that behind that idol does not stand an actual God. Something demonic stands behind it, but not any other God. And so that's what Paul is having to address. Now, in addition to that, what you would do when you would go to worship is you would offer a sacrifice. So you would bring a bull to Asclepius' temple to heal your sick granddad or to heal yourself of COVID or whatever you had back then, and you would kill the bull. Now, I don't know if you know this or not, but a human cannot eat a whole bull by themselves. Some of you think you can, but you cannot. And so what you would do is you would sacrifice the bull and you would try to eat some of it, almost as a form of pagan communion, because attached to most temples, they actually had these big dining halls. So you'd sacrifice the meat, you'd eat some of it in kind of the ye olde chilies that's attached to the temple, and then if there was any extra meat, they would sell it to the ye olde Walmart, the marketplace out in the, out in the streets, and you could buy that idle meat. So... That is the background of everything that's going on, and here's what Paul is going to say in short. This whole section, chapters 8 through 10, are all about the same issue. He's going to say, you are not actually, there is no other God but one. That's the knowledge you should have. But when you worship idols, you're actually worshiping something demonic. You shouldn't do something demonic. You can eat meat that is sold in the marketplace. But Zach, it's demon meat. It's not demon meat. Meat belongs to God. God made meat. God make meat good. Tweet it, okay? It's not demon meat, and so you can eat it. But, Paul will say, you can't eat it in such a way to where you actually participate in pagan worship. You can't eat it in the temple. That's worshiping. You cannot, as you eat it, be thinking of and honoring the gods that, the meat is, that are supposed to stand behind the meat. So I say all of that to say, last week, Paul had addressed people that were pagans that had become Christians, and they have this knowledge that now that I'm a Christian, I can eat this meat. It doesn't really matter because there are no other gods. Meat belongs to God. All good things belong to God. All truth belongs to God. This is a good thing. But other Christians' consciences, their self-awareness of who they are in Christ hasn't caught up to that. You with me so far? A lot of background here. Let's see as verse 7 continues. However, not all possess this knowledge. Now, here's a look at this next part. But some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. Here's what he's saying. Some people were pagan, and when they became a Christian, no problem. They love Jesus. They don't believe any of their pagan superstitions anymore. Life is good for them. 
But other Christians, listen to this, their conscience hasn't caught up to their theology. How they feel hasn't caught up to their knowledge of what they know is true. Let me give you a few examples to drive this point home. We were all told things by our parents that were lies that we still have a tendency to believe, okay? For example, we were told you cannot swim after eating. You ever heard that? Many scientific studies have been done, and that is not true. Somebody heard that. A kid was like, I want to swim every day, right? That is not true, okay? You're not going to drown in three and a half feet of water, because you ate some food before you swim. But still, I know that's the case, but still today, when I walk up to the edge of the pool, I think, I don't know, I just had some Cheez-Its, you know? <laughs> and I'm not sure. Or we were told this, don't swallow gum or it will stay in your stomach for seven years. That's also not true. It just passes through your body. But to this day, if I accidentally swallow a piece of gum, I think, oh no. <laughs> oh no, what has happened? Seven years later. Seven years later. Or we were told this, don't sit too close to the TV or what? You'll go blind, okay? And to this day, if I'm standing in front of a TV, I'll be like, oh, I'm way too close. I need to back up here, okay? <laughs> Even though I know it's not true, it hasn't, my, it hasn't caught up to my knowledge yet. I still feel like it's true because it's very hard to shake things that you grew up with. Or think about this, superstitions. Christians are not to be superstitious, right? Because God and God alone is the one that controls everything. But some of you still, when you break a mirror or you spill a little salt, you think, oh, no. Right? Tell me, tell me that. Maybe to quote Michael Scott from The Office, maybe you're not superstitious, but you're a little stitious. <laughs> if you're outside by yourself and a black cat walks by, do you at least notice it? Mm-hmm. Bunch of pagans in here. You know why it's bad luck to walk under a ladder? Because there are people and things on ladders. That's why. It'll hurt you. It's hard to undo these things when you've thought them your whole life. Even when you have truth, it's very hard to undo. Now, bring this into the realm of religion. If you grew up Jewish, you grew up with dietary laws. You heard that you cannot eat pork. You cannot eat bacon. You cannot eat pig. Pigs are unclean. You hear this day in and day out for decades. And then let's say you become a Christian and someone sets some bacon before you which is delicious. If I lived in the Old Testament, I would just go to hell because I'm going to eat bacon, right? <laughs> but they lay some bacon before you, and you know as a Christian that you can eat it. Christianity is not dependent on what you do or don't eat or what you do or don't drink, but as you eat it, it's hard for your conscience. It's hard to teach your heart what your mind knows to be true. Or to give you another example that is probably a little closer to home for most of us, if you grew up in the American South post-prohibition, and you grew up Baptist, Methodist, or some sort of charismatic group, it is probably hard for you when it comes to the area of alcohol, okay? You probably have this hesitancy. Even if you realize the Bible does not say that drinking is wrong, Jesus' first miracle was to turn water into gallons and gallons of alcoholic wine, Jesus himself confesses to drinking. He says the Son of Man came both eating and drinking and that people falsely accuse him of being a glutton and a drunkard. But Zach, I think staying away from alcohol is the wisest way to live. Then you're saying you're wiser than Jesus. Zach, but I don't like the taste of it. That's okay. Jesus likes the taste of it. And so because of that, because of that, we have a tendency to think that this is a spiritual issue of drinking. And by the way, we're not making this an issue. A few people have asked why have we mentioned alcohol several times in 1 Corinthians. It's because this is the idol meat of our day. Paul doesn't just want to write about circumcision, but he has to because the Jews made a big deal about it. Paul doesn't want to just write about idol meat, but he has to because the Corinthians make a big deal about it. So we've had to mention the alcohol thing here, not because we're alcoholics, 
Not because we're turning the children's area into a bar, but because you made a big deal about it. You're the one that makes us have to keep saying this, okay? So there are all these religious things that it's hard to reshape your mind around, but you have to do so. Now, what's specifically going on in Corinth is this. Again, imagine that you're a Corinthian. You're a little kid. From the time that you are a little kid, you grow up hearing about the gods, plural. When you're sick, your mom prays to the gods. When someone makes an oath, they swear before the gods. You're used to going to the temple. You're used to going to the temple with your dad as he brings an animal to do a a sacrifice. You're used to worshiping idols. You probably have little idols in your home that you light candles before and pray to. And you're used to every time you worship these gods when they kill an animal and you have pagan communion, you eat this food in honor of these gods. You've been doing that for years and years and years. And now you become a Christian, how hard is it for you to shake that ideology? How hard is it for you to get your mind around the fact that there is no God but one? That is the issue that Paul is addressing, okay? Two more comments on this passage, then we'll move to verse 8, and I'll say more controversial things because that's why you're here at Parkway. Now, two more things here. One, notice, according to this text, that your conscience can be wrong, okay? I was watching uh, Pinocchio with my kids, right? Back when Disney just made movies instead of pushed political positions, I was watching Pinocchio. And, uh, you know, I'm not going to describe it to you. You know the story. There's this possessed toy, and he has a friend that's, a, you know, a cricket, and he's got this nose thing, whatever. So there's this song, though, that Jiminy Cricket sings, to always let your conscience be your guide. Okay? Great song. Terrible theology. Because your conscience can be wrong. How you feel does not reality. You should not live the way you feel. You should not follow your heart. The Bible says your heart is desperately wicked. Rather, you have to reshape your conscience through the scriptures. I don't think you should sin against your conscience, but what you need to do is you need to tell your conscience sometimes to shut up and to submit to God's word. You need to tell your conscience when it's wrong, and you need to preach the Bible to your conscience to get your heart to catch up with your theology, to get your heart to catch up with your head. One more comment. Throughout 1 Corinthians, as we saw at the end of Romans, Paul is going to divide Christians into those who are strong and those who are weak. Now, he doesn't mean their relationship to God. All Christians are equally close to God in Christ. Yes and amen. What, we, what, he, what he's doing is we have a tendency, when we think of a really strong Christian, we think that it's a Christian that stays away from what's secular. We think it's a Christian that stays away from what's worldly. A really strong Christian, we think, is one that doesn't drink and doesn't dance and doesn't watch movies. They straighten their tie, they shave their face, and they try to be a good old boy. And here's what's so powerful about 1 Corinthians and Romans. Paul's going to say that's not a strong Christian, that is a weak Christian. A strong Christian is the one who so knows that Christianity is about Jesus that their conscience isn't bothered by all these little trifles. That's a strong Christian. Keep that in mind as we go. Verse 8. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. Now notice in verse 8 the weird reversal of the language. I wouldn't have expected him to say we are no worse off if we do not eat. I would expect him to say we're no worse off if we eat and no better off if we do. But he doesn't. He switches those things. Okay? We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if We do. Now, why does he do that? Because here's what's going on. I gave you all that background for this purpose. The strong Christians in Corinth that can eat meat sacrificed to idols, and they know this is no big deal because my relationship to Christ is based on faith, not what I eat. What they are doing is they are probably using their Christian freedom to pressure weaker Christians into A, violating their conscience, 
and B, possibly even causing them to sin. Because we'll see here in a few verses that they're actually eating not just meat from the marketplace, they're eating it in an idol's temple. So these Christians are saying, I'm so free in Christ, I can commit idolatry. And if you don't commit idolatry with me, you're a weak Christian. And Paul is having to rebuke them for that. You see, this context is a bit different than Romans 14. Romans 14 is going to basically say, some people are, its conscience will let them do one thing. Other people, their conscience won't let them do that. Everybody love everybody. Everything's okay. This context has some of that, but it mainly is rebuking strong Christians for using their freedom to pressure other Christians into violating their conscience and probably pressuring them into actually sinning. That's what's going on. Now, Verse 8 says something that sounds irrelevant to us today, but I want to show you how completely relevant this is. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. Let me explain this theologically. Let me, let me God-splain you something real quick. There are some things that are always good, that are always righteous. Loving God, always good. Okay? Wanting to know God's word better, always good. Loving other people, always good. Resisting sinful temptation, always good. Those things are always good. Conversely, there are other things that are always bad. Adultery is always bad. You cannot commit adultery to the glory of God. Blasphemy is always bad. To speak against or falsely against God, never good. Okay? Uh, Idolatry is never good. You cannot worship an idol to the glory of God. So there are some things that are always bad. Some things always good. Some things always bad. With me so far? Most things in life, and this is what verse 8 is pointing at, including the food we eat, most things in life, though, don't fall into one of those two categories. Most things in life can either be used in a good way or used in a bad way. The fancy theology term that we've given you is adiaphora. Okay, the Greek word diaphora means difference. Adiaphora means no difference, meaning it doesn't make any difference to your faith. The singular is adiaphoron with an N at the end, and the collection of things that are neither commanded nor forbidden, are what are called adiaphora issues. You with me so far? So here's what this text just said, and this is really powerful, and it's very freeing if you understand what it's saying. When it comes to these morally neutral things, you have the freedom in Christ to do them righteously, but you don't have the freedom to do them sinfully. May I give you a few examples? Okay, let me give you a few examples of some things. Their issue is eating meat sacrificed to idols. Let me give you some of the uh, issues of our day. Now, before I say this, let me say something to the kids. If you still live under your parents' roof, what I'm about to say does not apply to you, okay? Your parents get to give you rules even if they're not in the Bible because they're your parents. What I'm about to say only applies to those who are independent, to those who are adults. So we've seen eating meat being something that is adiaphora. You're not holier if you abstain or you're not uh, less holy if you uh, eat it or whatever it might be. Let's go over a few other issues here. We mentioned drinking alcohol, okay? I would encourage you to take wine for communion. That's what Jesus instituted. But outside of that, you're not required to drink alcohol, okay? You're not holier if you drink. You're not less holy if you, uh, wait, which one did I just say? Whatever the opposite is of what I just said, okay? It makes no difference. It's adiaphorin when it comes to drinking alcohol. Now, can you use it sinfully? Sure. To get drunk is to use it sinfully. Uh, To make it an idol where after a long, hard day, you don't run to Jesus, you just run to that. There are things that can make it sinful, but it's not sinful inherently, okay? Here's another one. Getting tattoos. (gasps) Did the pastor just say those weren't sinful? Yep. You're not holier if you have tattoos. You're not holier if you don't have tattoos. Now, here's what you're thinking. But Zach, what about Leviticus 19, right? 
Some people who've never read Leviticus know Leviticus 19. Leviticus 19 says that you're not to tattoo your body, to make cut marks on your body for the dead, or to trim your beard. So a few things here. One, we are no longer under the Mosaic law. The New Testament says that about a thousand times. You are no longer under these commands of the Old Testament that was given to Moses and the people of Israel temporarily until Christ came. Number two, the reason that tattoos were forbidden in the Old Testament is not because God was against your sweet ink. It was because it was linked in other nations to paganism. That's why it says not to make cut marks on your body for the dead. That's something that you would do in pagan worship. And then lastly, in the very same line in Hebrew, it says not to trim the edges of your beard. And yet, I see many men with smooth faces in here. I see many men with beards that at some point have been trimmed. How dare you? How dare you? So, it's adiaphora. I have four tattoos. And guess what? They're all hidden under my clothes because you church people will judge me. (laughs) Though the Bible says that I am the strong Christian, right? Okay. Now, you might consider waiting. Whenever you do turn 18 and you move out of your parents' house, whatever, you might consider waiting because your spouse might not want tattoos. Or what you think is awesome at 18, you will not think is awesome at 40. Okay? Right? So keep that in mind. Now, there are ways where tattoos could become sinful. If you had a naked woman tattooed on your arm or something, that would be sinful. But in and of itself, it's adiaphoran. It's this issue that doesn't make a difference. Here's another one. Smoking a cigar. You can smoke a cigar if you want. You can smoke a pipe. Okay? The Bible never forbids smoking. Now, are some types of smoking sinful? Sure. If you're smoking six packs a day and you're killing your body and you're addicted, that's a problem. You're not allowed to commit suicide just over a slow process. But other than that, the Bible's not going to forbid you having a pipe or a cigar or whatever it might be. You guys getting uncomfortable yet? I always like when I go through these because some people are like, yeah, and other people are like, don't you dare tell my kids they can get a tattoo when they're 30. Don't you dare tell them, right? You see, we're more comfortable with legalism. We're more comfortable saying, if something can be abused, let's get rid of it altogether. But that's not what the Bible does. Here's another one. Celebrating Halloween, okay? You're not holier if you celebrate it. You're not less holy if you don't, okay? It's, it's an adiaphora issue. Are there some things that are sinful in Halloween? Sure. If you're wearing a costume that is immodest, that would be sinful. If you're doing a demonic seance, that would be sinful. If you go sacrifice a virgin, all that would be bad. But you going door-to-door dressed as Winnie the Pooh to get candy is not, okay? But Zach, Halloween started as a pagan ritual. So did meat sacrifice to idols. That's Paul's point. Just because something had a pagan origin, you leave the sin behind, but if there's something good in it, whether that be meat or candy, that can be redeemed for the glory of God. Now, here's one that will make some of you upset. Non-necessary cosmetic plastic surgery non-necessary cosmetic plastic surgery. You're a woman and you just hate your nose. For example, you got your dad's nose and you've hated it your whole life. And so you decide to get plastic surgery to reshape your nose or something like that. It's not sinful. It's not. We want, we want to find a verse. That sounds bad, Zach. We shouldn't be using science to enhance our bodies. Please give me chapter and verse for that. You already do this anyway. You get braces You cut your hair, you put on makeup, you work out, you get lap band surgery, you get Botox injections for wrinkles. We already do that all the time. We just get uncomfortable with it. Now, could there be some things that are sinful? Yes, if you're using that not to enhance your body, but to, um, you know, to deform your body, to try to change genders, for example, that would be sinful. If your heart in doing so is just because you're vain and you just only find your identity in your looks, that would be a problem. 
If you're a married woman and you're trying to attract some other man who's not your husband, those things would be sinful. But in and of itself, it's not sin. You see, we think this passage is just about idol mate, and then we start to realize what Paul's really saying is, if there's something the Bible has not forbidden, either expressly or by logical implication, some Christians will be comfortable with it, and some won't. And both groups love Jesus. Okay? Both groups love Jesus. This next one's hard for me to say, but uh, you're not holier if you do or don't do this. Owning a gun, okay? You're not holier if you own a gun or less holy if you don't. It's an adiaphora issue. Dancing, dancing. The Reformers, the Puritans, so many Protestants have been against dancing, and it's mind-blowing. It makes you wonder if they've ever read the Bible. Dancing is done so often in the Bible as an act of worship to God, it's crazy that they ever came to that, you know, that, that conclusion. Now, are some types of dancing sinful? Sure. If you're in the club, grinding on some stranger at the snake hole lounge or whatever, that would be a problem. But dancing per se is not sin. I'll give you a few more and then I'll move on. I'm trying to hit this point home. Gambling, okay? Gambling in and of itself, the Bible never forbids. Now, certain types of gambling could be sinful. You're running some illegal ring out of your house. You're gambling away your life savings. You're throwing your wedding ring into the pot for that, you know, hand of Texas hold'em. That would be a problem, but but gambling for fun in a responsible way is not forbidden in the Bible. But Zach, the Bible says you should be a good steward of your money. Yeah, and there are professional poker players that make millions of dollars a year gambling, and they're being great stewards of their money. So it's not sinful inherently. But again, some of you are comfortable with it, and some of you say, no, burn Choctaw to the ground, right? (laughs) And the Bible's going to say you're not holier if you do it or less holy if you don't. I'll give you two more. Sexual acts within marriage. Outside of marriage, anything sexual is sin. But within marriage, you have freedom. Some couples will be comfortable with things that other couples will not. And that's up to your conscience. Okay, I'm not going to go into more detail on that here. Lastly, what you watch. Okay, what you watch. Watching TV, watching movies. So let me say a few things here. First of all, there are some things that no Christians should watch. There are some things that are so indecent, no Christian should watch. To give an extreme example, pornography, for example, no Christian should watch that. Most shows and movies, though, are going to be a matter of personal conscience. I'll give you an example. I can watch shows where there's drug use. Do you know why? Because I have never been tempted and I'm not currently tempted to do drugs. But I have a friend who used to be a meth addict, and he got saved, and now he's a Christian. And when he watches those shows, he feels far from God. He He remembers all his shame. He remembers all his sin. And so for him, he shouldn't watch it. It doesn't mean I can't watch it, and it doesn't mean I should judge him that he can't watch it. He has the freedom to watch it or not. Now, I hope that eventually his faith grows enough to where he can watch it and it doesn't bother him. But that's where he's at right now. I can watch shows where there's violence. Do you know why? Because I am not tempted to violence. But I've got a buddy who was in the military and had to kill a bunch of people, and he does not like watching war movies. It hurts his conscience. Okay? Personally, I don't like horror movies. You can watch horror movies. There are some that you probably shouldn't watch, but you can watch them. For me, it freaks me out. But that doesn't mean you can't go get your scared on. Go for it, right? These are going to be a matter of conscience with a lot of these things. Now, the reason I give all of that is because what what the Corinthians are doing is they're taking something that is not a big issue. It's not supposed to be an issue. And they're making it something to divide the church. Be strong like me, maybe even committing idolatry, or you're this weak Christian. Or this weak Christian eats the meat and they feel like they're worshiping the God and it violates their conscience. And there's all these problems. That's what's going on at Corinth. Now, we have a tendency because the human heart is legalistic. We want to say, because everything that I just mentioned can be abused, 
we want to just completely get rid of it, don't we? We want to say it's just safer then to stay away from alcohol. It's safer to say tattoos are always sinful. It's safer to say don't ever gamble. You might get addicted. Just get rid of God's good gifts so that you don't use them in a bad way. But that's not what the Bible will do. The Bible will make you take God's good gifts and use them in a good way or don't use them, but it won't let you throw out the baby with the bathwater. To quote Martin Luther, Do you suppose that abuses are eliminated by destroying the object which is abused? Men can go wrong with wine and women. Shall we then prohibit and abolish women? The sun, the moon, and the stars, meaning in paganism, have all been worshipped. Shall we pluck them out of the sky? You don't deal with sin by getting rid of a non-sinful issue. You deal with sin by dealing with sin, by turning to Christ, by focusing on the gospel. Back to the text, verse 9. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. Okay? Now, I have never heard a pastor in my career of ministry when preaching this text get this text right. So please pay attention. Let me tell you where how they get it wrong. The question we have to ask is what does Paul mean by saying not to be a stumbling block? Don't be a stumbling block. What does he mean? Let's first of all talk about what he doesn't mean. What some people will say is that being a stumbling block means that you offend another person. You ever heard that? You shouldn't have a margarita at Chili's because you could be a stumbling block to someone from your church who sees it or whatever it might be. That is not at all what the text is talking about. That is nowhere in context. Okay? In fact, Paul's going to say something stronger in 1 Corinthians 10, 29, for why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? So being a stumbling block doesn't mean that somebody sees you do this act of Christian freedom and they are offended. Do you know why? Because everything you do offends somebody. This is a great lesson our culture kind of needs to hear. You can't not offend. There are people that are offended that women wear pants in church instead of dresses. There are people that are offended that we have a guitar up on stage. There are people offended that we, you know, whatever it might be, you can't not offend people. Being a stumbling block in 1 Corinthians 8 has nothing to do with whether or not somebody likes the non-sinful action that you're doing. With me so far? Here's also what it does not mean, which I've heard a lot of pastors say, and it's not correct either. Being a stumbling block does not mean that somebody sees you do this act of Christian freedom, and then they go on their own and commit some sort of sin because of it. Like if somebody sees you drink at a restaurant, that they go home and they get drunk and that's your fault. First of all, they saw everybody else drink at the restaurant, and they saw Bud Light signs on the drive home, and, it's all, and they already had alcohol in their house apparently, etc. The problem there is not you, it's them. You didn't cause them to sin. They went home and they caused themselves to sin. To give you another example, let's say you're a woman, and you wear some trendy new clothes, and let's say they're not immodest. Okay, They're modest, trendy clothes. And a guy looks at you and lusts. Have you caused him to lust? No, you've just been normal. His sin caused him to lust. So the text is not talking about that. Here is what is going on at Corinth that the text is actually talking about. Imagine that I, imagine we're back in in Corinth and we're the church at Corinth, and I say, I'm a pastor, I'm so strong in my faith, you weak Christians, you need to be like me. Not only do I eat idol meat, I can even eat it in the temple, because after all, Paul said that idols are nothing, so we should all be able to go to the temple and eat meat, and it doesn't matter. And what that causes you to do, not only is to actually sin, because you're eating meat in the temple, worshiping demons, but it also causes you to violate your conscience when the Bible says anything not done in faith is sin. That's what it means to cause some, to be a stumbling block. It's where your pressuring influence is causing them to commit actual sin directly, not indirectly, but directly. 
Now, it's hard for me to think of examples of how we do this today. I'll give you maybe a few that would work. I have some friends that grew up very legalistic, and then they became Christians. And they realized that in Christ, we have freedom. So they would hang out, and they would smoke cigars, and they would have drinks, and they realized we're free in Christ. But then they would start doing things that are actually sin. The big thing they started doing was just having really foul mouths. Despite the fact that the Bible is going to tell you that uh, let no unwholesome speech come out of your mouth, you're going to be judged for every careless word. They just started cursing up a storm, telling dirty jokes. And if you joined their little club, they would want you to do the same thing. And so their pressuring influence would cause you to do things that were actually sin, even though they shouldn't. That's one example. Or here might be another one. Let's say you're a woman and you like watching some particular show that has pretty ladies on it. Okay, you just watch this show. I'm not going to mention any of the shows whether the ladies are or not catty, whether the ladies are or not gossipy, but maybe you like watching that show. You can watch it, no problem, okay? Adi Afra, you have freedom in Christ. But let's say you know your husband struggles with lust and you make him watch the show with you. And you say, you watch it. Why can't you be a better Christian? Why can't you just not lust? Why can't you just be God there? Come over here and watch the show with me. That would be being a stumbling block. It's where through your pressuring influence, you're directly causing somebody else not only to violate their conscience, but actually to sin. Verse 10, for if anyone sees you who have this knowledge, eating in an idol's temple, notice that's actually sinful, not just the eating the meat, that's cool, but you can't actually partake in pagan worship. If anyone sees you have this knowledge, eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? When they see you do it, they feel like they have to do it, and they are committing idolatry. You are too by being in the temple. They're committing it just by what they're thinking about when they're eating the meat. This is a very foreign concept to us. We don't deal much with idol meat. So let me give you an example that I think is helpful. So one of our deacons, great guy, his name is Rahul Gaba. Okay? He grew up in India, and he used to be Hindu, as most people in India are. He came to the U.S. to study in college, and he met Jesus. He became a Christian, and he forsook Hinduism. He actually had a pretty strong break with Hinduism. He would be considered the strong Christian, if you want to say it that way. He hasn't ever really been tempted to go back to Hinduism. But one of the things that was difficult for him was seeing how many Christians in the United States practice yoga. Because I don't know if you know this or not, yoga started out in Hindu worship. It was a way to meditate and to honor the gods by putting yourself in shapes that the gods are. That's how, that's how yoga started. Now, is it sinful for you to go to a gym and do yoga today? No. Stretching belongs to Jesus. Breathing belongs to Jesus. Being in shape belongs to Jesus. Now, you may not worship Ganesh or Shiva or something, but just doing stretches and calling that yoga is fine. But for Gaba, he couldn't go do that. Do you know why? Because he had grown up in Hinduism. So when he, if he were to do some stretch, that would make him think of the Hindu gods. And so he shouldn't do that. Because as he's doing it, he might not just be thinking of the Hindu gods, he might be tempted to actually do this in worship of them. And that would be sin. That's the kind of thing that's going on in the text. You can eat meat no matter its source, okay? Sold in the marketplace, eat it. But as you eat it, you may not do it in conscious worship of an idol, which would be demonic, nor may you go to the idol's temple and do it, which would also be demonic. Verses 11 through 12. And so, by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Let's look at the first part there. And so, by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed. What does he mean when he says they're destroyed? It can mean one of two things. I think it means the second thing. The first is 
that if somebody thinks eating that meat is sinful and they just start doing it, they are going to feel far from God. They are going to be grieving their conscience. They're not doing it in faith. And if you continue to sin against your conscience, you are going to feel like God hates you even if he doesn't. By the way, just as a pastoral aside, if I want to destroy your faith and I'm the devil, all I have to do is get you to think that God's love is dependent upon your actions. You'll fail and you'll fail and you'll fail and you'll think that God hates you and then you'll say, forget it, I can't do this. That's all I have to do if I'm the devil is just to make you realize you're doing things, all of us in here, things that are sinful that we shouldn't do and we keep doing them. The way that you grow in holiness is by realizing that God's love for you does not change even in those times. So there are those that would think that because I'm eating this meat and I shouldn't eat this meat, I'm probably sinning against God and he's mad at me and so therefore they're destroyed in the sense that it hurts them spiritually. Now, that's true theologically. I actually don't think that's the main thing Paul means by this, okay? In the context here, they're committing actual idolatry and elsewhere where Paul uses this Greek word destroyed in the New Testament, it means eternal destruction. It means condemned. It means going to hell. So here's what I think Paul is saying. You're pressuring this weak person into something that will lead them into actual idolatry. And if they continue in unrepentant idolatry, they're not Christians and they will go to hell. That's the warning. He's saying if you need another motivation for why you shouldn't be pressuring the weak Christians to do this, there's a good one for you. Now look at this next part of verse 11 and verse 12. This is fascinating. The brother for whom Christ died, thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. If you needed another reason to sometimes lay down your freedom for the sake of keeping somebody from falling into sin, here's a good one for you. When you sin against a Christian, at least in a sense, you sin against Christ. You realize that when you become a Christian, you die. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, okay? And so it's no longer Zach. Zach doesn't exist anymore. There's no longer Caleb. Caleb doesn't exist anymore. There's no longer Wade. Wade doesn't exist anymore. When you become a Christian, you die and you are in Christ. The only thing that matters is your relationship to him. What's true of his status is true of your status. He's loved by the Father, and so are you. He's perfect, so are you. He's righteous and spotless, so are you. You become a part of his body. I'm not saying you literally become Jesus. My point is that you are so closely in your relationship aligned to him that what's true of his status is true of you. Think about in 1 Corinthians 6 where guys are going to temple prostitutes. Paul says when you do that as a Christian, you've joined Christ to a prostitute. Why? Because you're in Christ. In the book of Acts, Jesus shows up to Saul of Tarsus before he's an apostle, the apostle Paul. And what does he say to him after Saul has been persecuting Christians? He says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? How did, you, how did Paul persecute Jesus? Because he persecuted Christians. When you do that, you are, in a, to an extent, persecuting Jesus. To the extent that you've done it, to the least of these, you've done it unto me, says Jesus. So this is a very powerful thing. When you sin against another Christian, there is a sense in which you sin against God. David says this after he commits adultery with Bathsheba, kills her husband Uriah, he says, God, against you and you alone have I sinned. So when you are in traffic and you get mad and you flip off another Christian, it's like you're flipping off Jesus. When you have hatred or unforgiveness or bitterness in your heart towards another Christian, it's like you have bitterness towards Jesus. When you're walking in pride and you look down on other people, it's like you're looking down on Jesus. This is a very powerful text with what he's saying here. Not only could you cause this person to go to hell, you're also sinning not just against them. If you don't care about them, you're sinning against Christ to an extent as well. So he ends in verse 13. Therefore, 
If food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. Now, to be clear, he's using hyperbolic language, exaggerated language, for a literal point. His whole thing is, if eating idle meat causes my brother to sin, I'll give up all meat. Now, he's not saying you should literally give up all meat. Later on, he's going to go on to eat meat. Later on, he's going to go on to say that you can eat meat. It's not saying if you have any Christian freedom, throw it out always. That's not the point. Here is the point. Okay? Here's the point of the entire sermon. If you've heard nothing else, it's not about Halloween. It's not about Thomas Aquinas and the Summa Theologia. Here's the main point of the entire sermon. Ready? Here it is. Love for your brothers and sisters in Christ is more important than your freedom. Let me say it again. Love for your brothers and sisters in Christ is more important than your freedom. Do you love others and do you love Christ enough to not pressure this weak brother into causing them to sin? That's what the text is saying, okay? Now, let me be clear. This is not saying politically. We're talking about within the church. Don't use this politically. During the, uh, the COVID pandemic, some uh, governing officials would get up and they would say, it's not about your freedom. It's about protecting others. And you should be terrified anytime a governing official says something's not about your freedom. That's their sole purpose. Their sole purpose is to protect your individual liberty, period. It's not to protect your hygiene and health. That's your job. It's your doctor's job. Their job is to protect your liberty. So don't make this political. He's talking about within the church, that's the case. Within the church, there are times we lay down our freedoms, we lay down our rights for the sake of our brother whom we love. Because even if we don't love them like we should, we should at least love the Christ who stands behind them and lay down that freedom at times for them. By the way, as another odd diaphora issue, that was the Parkway's response to COVID. We did not require masks, nor did we forbid them. You're not godly or less godly if you wear a mask. We did not require vaccines, nor did we forbid them. You're not godlier or less godly. We would encourage you to talk to your primary care physician and let them give you advice on that. Our job as Christians, though, is just to say, here's what's allowed. Not to bind the consciences of people. That's why we have streaming services and in-person services. One, is not, one group is not holier than the other. We need to not look down on the other groups. These are things that are a diaphora. So, how do we apply a weird text about idol meat 2,000 years ago to a context where... We don't really struggle with that anymore. Go ahead and raise your hand if you ate idle meat this morning. Man, I was hoping one sarcastic person <laughs> would, and then I'd ask them where they bought it, and it would get into this whole weird thing. Okay, here's what I want to do. I want to end with 10 questions that I want you just to think through. Don't write them down. I'm not going to put them on the screen. I don't want you writing them down. I want you thinking about them. If you'd like this list, email me, and I'll send it to you. You ready? Here's how we would apply this text today. 10 questions, and then we'll do communion. Number one. When it comes to issues that are not sin, adiaphora, do you have a tendency to be on the side of the strong Christian or the weak Christian, and why do you think you err on that side? Why do you think you err on that side? Number two, are there any areas in your life where you are actually sinning in the name of freedom? Some of you have consciences that allow you to do things that you shouldn't. Others of you have consciences that don't allow you to do things that you should. But where are you using Christian freedom as a license in areas that are actually sinful? Number three, are there any areas in your life where you're causing another person to sin? Not just where you're sinning, but you're, by your influence, you're causing another person directly to sin. Number four, are there any areas of your life where you care more about you and your desires than you care about others and their desires? Now, that's all of us. That's convicting. To, uh, to consider others as better than yourself, that's a hard command because I think I'm better than a lot of people. 
but that's because I'm not, and I'm terrible, terribly sinful, right? Where are you putting your stuff above other people's stuff? Number five, are there any areas in your life where you care about your Christian freedoms more than loving other Christians? Not that you can't do those things on your own, not that you can't, but they're where you would uh, not be willing to lay that down if it would cause someone to sin momentarily. Number six, I love this question. Are there things that you think are sinful that are not really sinful? Where have you added commands to Scripture? You see, to add to God's Word is just as evil as taking it away because you're still saying it's not perfect. You're still saying it's not perfect if you do that. Number seven, where are you committing idolatry? I doubt very much anybody in here is bowing down to metal statues or figurines. Most of our idols today are not metal, they're mental. What is the thing that you run to other than Christ to find joy? What is the thing you run to other than Christ to find safety and comfort? What is the thing that you love as much or more than God? Where are you committing idolatry? Where do you run to this thing to make you feel joy that's not Christ? Number eight, are you participating in some type of religion or spirituality that is not orthodox, biblical, historic Christianity? In what ways might this open you up to spiritual attack? So it's not wrong to study other religions. You can study them. But is anyone in here, don't raise your hand, but is anyone in here participating in something that they shouldn't be spiritually? You're into some new age movement stuff. You're playing with an Ouija board. You're doing some sort of witchcraft. You're, you're, you're dabbling in some other religion or something like that. You're dabbling in some of the ideology of our day and of our culture. That can open you to demonic attack. Repent of those things. Number nine. What are some things that you were wrongly told about God or morality that has shaped your conscience? How can you reshape your conscience around God's word? And then last one. Number ten. Is there something that you always thought was wrong that you now realize is not wrong that you need to try to help grow in Christian freedom. I like that one. See, a lot of us will say, oh, yeah, yeah, these things aren't sin, but you say, okay, come do it with me, and they're like, no, right? (laughs) Because there's still a tendency to feel like it's sinful. Sometimes the way that you help shape your conscience, again, don't violate your conscience. You first study the Bible to shape your conscience, but then sometimes you have to make little baby steps in action to help you do that. I'll give you an example, and we'll end with this. Uh, I grew up thinking that drinking was sinful. My parents didn't tell me that. I just assumed that. So I never drank growing up. Even when I was an adult, I was not a drinker, etc. I just thought it was sinful. I, I grew up very legalistic. I myself, by nature, am very legalistic. And then when I became a Christian, I had a, a home group leader that said, hey, man, let's, let's go get a beer and talk about Jesus. And I said, you can't do both of those things. <laughs> and he said, no, you can. And it's good. And it was very, and it was very freeing. It's not about alcohol. I don't really care about alcohol. What I care about is Bible. What I care about is you not adding commands to Scripture. There's something freeing sometimes about looking this thing in the eye that you thought was sinful that you know is no longer sinful that's really encouraging. Think about how powerful it would be to be that Christian eventually in Corinth after studying the Bible where you finally step up in the marketplace and you say, I'll order the Zeus steak and I'll eat it to the glory of God. It's very powerful to be able to do that. Are there little steps you need to take to practice freedom if you are somebody with a condemning conscience. Let's pray as we transition to communion. Almighty God, we thank you for your word. I pray that you would be with us as we have conversations about this text, as we go to lunch, as we meet in our community groups, whatever it might be. I pray that you would guide our conversations. We thank you for your word. We confess that you are far more gracious than we've ever thought that you were. We confess you're far more loving than we ever thought that you were. 
We confess you're far more wrathful than we ever thought that you were. You have all your attributes to the highest degree. We do not think of you rightly, ever. Would you help us? We love you and thank you. It's in Christ's name. Amen. Well, if you've got the elements there for communion, we are going to take communion together as a church body. If you are somebody who loves Jesus, you're a Christian, and you've been obedient to him in Christian baptism, we'd encourage you to partake of communion with us. Uh, If you are somebody who loves Jesus, but you're walking in some sort of unrepentant, high-handed sin, and you're not fighting it, we would ask you not to take of communion. Because communion's for sinners. If you're somebody who's just blown it this week, you've had a terrible week, you've walked in a bunch of sin, take communion with us if you're repentant. The issue is repentance. Are you repentant? Have you turned your sins over to Christ or are you still carrying them? If you're somebody who has turned your sins over to Christ, we would ask you to partake of communion with us. Here's what I want you to think about as we partake of communion, okay? Think back again to our text and what's going on at ancient Corinth. One of the things that they would do is they would go to the temple and they would eat this meal in honor of their false gods because eating is a sign of fellowship in the Bible. That's why Jesus gets excoriated for eating with tax collectors and sinners. To eat with someone in the Bible means that you accept them. It means that you identify with them. It means that you love them. That's why King David promises a guy he can eat at his table. That's why uh, Jesus eats with tax collectors and sinners. That's why it's a big deal in Galatians when Peter is not wanting to eat with Gentiles. It says he's saying, I don't accept you. So eating a meal in the Bible is not just consuming food like in our culture. Eating a meal means you are the one that I identify with. And in ancient Corinth, in ancient Greece, they would identify with these pagan gods. They would identify with Demeter or Asclepius or whoever. They would identify with them. Now, take that imagery into what's going on in communion because the Jews would do the same thing. The Jews would offer a sacrifice, and they wouldn't eat certain kinds of sacrifices, but other kinds they would eat in honor of Yahweh. What Jesus does, though, is he takes this Passover meal, and he gives it to the church for us to eat. And here's why. Because eating is something we are doing in honor of our God, Jesus. We are all sitting at the Thanksgiving table because we're Christians. We all belong to the same family. It's a really long table. And at the very end of it, sitting at the head of the table, is Jesus. And what it also says is that we accept one another. When we partake of communion, we're identifying with Christ and we're identifying with one another. That we belong to a body. That you are the hands and feet and eyes and legs and whatever of Christ. When we sin against each other, we sin against Christ. So with all that in mind, I'm going to give you a second just to repent wherever you need to repent, and then we'll partake of communion together. On the night that Christ was betrayed, he had a communal meal, a Passover, to remember his sacrifice where he took bread and he took wine and he ate with those who were closest to him. We get to join in on that when we partake of communion. He says that this bread is his body, broken for us on the cross. Let's partake of it together. In the same way, he took the wine and said that this was his blood that would be poured out for the forgiveness of sin for many that it was blood of a new covenant, not like the old covenant, but rather blood of a new covenant, a better covenant. Let's partake of it together. Church, would you stand as we have a prayer, our final song, and closing commission.
Dear God, we thank you for things like communion, that though we take it every week, we might be tempted to forget the rich symbolism there, that you have allowed us to taste forgiveness. You have allowed us to taste and smell your mercy. We're sensible creatures. We need help with this. We should just be able to believe you, but we can't. So you've given us little food that we can eat. You didn't just give us an idea that we can kick around because ideas can be doubted. You gave us a meal. That way we can eat together and focus on you. We love you. It's for your name and glory we pray. Amen.
Please be seated. All right, so everybody just take a big deep breath. We're only about halfway there in 1 Corinthians, but, um, you know, I think about this passage and I think about just the relationship with my wife. I grew up in a very conservative, orthodox, evangelical, Baptist church, and I struggle with these things. Um, I mean, even recently, so even your elders struggle with these things as well. Um, particularly the legalism, just thinking somehow that I'm just that much more virtuous because maybe there are things that I cherry-pick and just purge from my life that I've never been commanded to do so. And yet my wife doesn't struggle with these things, and that's because she didn't grow up in the church. She doesn't have that baggage. Um, So as an adult, you know, she just read the Bible for what it said instead of just, you know, adding things to it. So I want to encourage you this morning. Um... You know, if you are someone who struggles with that legalism, just let the Bible stand on its own. You know, just let the words of the Holy Spirit speak for themselves. And if you're someone who doesn't, don't be obnoxious about it. You know, don't cram it down people's throats. We have the freedom to enjoy things the Bible lets us, but we also have the freedom to abstain from them when we want to. Um, But ultimately, one of the running themes that we see is it's not about you anyway. And your salvation is not even yours. It's God's. So we're here to honor Him. And one thing that is not adiaphora, one thing that is a command in Scripture, right out of Philippians, as uh, as, uh, Zach mentioned, is we are to regard others as better than ourselves. We are to esteem others as better than we are. That's a command. That's not adiaphora. That's not freedom. And we don't do that when we're obnoxious about our freedoms. And we don't do that when we abstain from things and expect everybody else to do the same. So it's not about you. It's about Christ. Let us have lives that are honoring to God. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you so much for your word. And, and we know it's fitting that in the Bible, the, the animal that you created to use as an example of our waywardness is the sheep. And we need a shepherd. We wander. We move away. We need you to come down and just lay your hand on us, your loving hand on us, and bring us back to the fold, bring us back to the straight and narrow. And Father, we just thank you that you've given us your completed word. We thank you you've given us your spirit to help us to interpret it, to help us to open our eyes to the truths that are in Scripture. And Father, we'll we'll just never fully understand it. We know this. We are limited, and we will continue to sin. But Father, we thank you for the gift of Christ. We thank you that even though we do sin, that... Uh, that you look at us just like you look at Christ. Even though we continue to stumble, even though there's places where we continue to fail you, Father, we just thank you so much for your love and your mercy. Father, help us to love one another. This is a commandment in Scripture. This is not something that we have the freedom to do or not do. We are commanded to love one another, to place others above ourselves. And Father, this is a very difficult thing. We're Americans, darn it. We do what we want. 
And we think we have the freedom to do what we want all the time, even at the expense of others. And yet, yet the Bible was written to the whole world. The Bible is not American. The Bible is not even Jewish. The Bible is about you, Father, and your revelation to your people. So help us to be good examples of Christ, that everything that we do would point to Christ and not point to ourselves. And Father, even in light of our passage this morning, help us to just lead lives that are honoring to you, loving one another, and ultimately relying upon you and trusting in all that you have for us. So Father, as we leave here today, we just ask that these things will be on our minds, that we will meditate on these things in our hearts, and that we will be a changed people, set apart from the things of the world, but still in the world, pointing to you. So we ask all this in your Son's holy name, and it's by your Spirit that we pray. Amen. Thank you. You may be dismissed. Oh,